Let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. Verses 31 and 32, we're continuing on in the Sermon on the Mount and in these, uh, these six passages from Matthew 5.21 to 5.48, Jesus is explaining what he means by, uh, what he means in verse 20 when he says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven And in verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I've talked a little bit about the the scribes and the Pharisees and the letter of the law and and the way that they they stuck to the letter of the law and then they provided an interpretation based on rabbinical tradition. Jesus, as he goes through these, begins with uh, something that, that... the, the vast majority of people would never do, and that's murder. I had mentioned, I think, in that, that sermon that about one in every 20,000 Americans will commit murder this year. So it's, it's not a huge number. And then Jesus moves to adultery. And that's a, that, that's a greater number than murder, but it, it still is a, a little bit out there. And then he moves to divorce this morning. And there's, I would just, I think I'm safe in saying there's not a family in here that has not been touched in one way by divorce. Either, either personally and individually or with siblings, perhaps with parents, with grandparents, perhaps with children. And so Jesus, as he moves through these, becomes more and more and more intentionally personal. We'll see next week that he deals with those who swear oaths, and then he moves on to retaliation, and then finally, loving your enemies. And he, he is, you know, of course, brilliant. He's Jesus. <laughs> but he begins with something where most people would say, okay, yeah, I've never done that. So I can listen to this. And then he quickly moves to something that touches every one of us. He says in verses 31 and 32, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. In in Matthew 19, there is a parallel passage. Verses 3 to 9, and Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two But one flesh, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart. 
Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And then finally in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, as Paul speaks about marriage, verses 13 and 15, He says, if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved God has called you to peace. Father, we're, we're dealing with very clear words this morning, but difficult words because of personal histories and family histories. And so we ask for your spirit to do his work of opening our eyes to see and opening our ears to really hear Open our hearts to understand and to believe what it is that you have said and why you have said it. We need your help this morning. There's good news in here, but we have to, to, we have to dig it out. And so, please help us. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. What Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5 and what he tells us through the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 is that there are only two legitimate reasons for divorce, adultery and abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. Divorce for every other reason is illegitimate. Every marriage that follows a wrongful divorce begins with the sin of adultery, not with holiness, not with sanctity. God never commanded divorce. He permitted it because of the hardness of human hearts. These are really strong words. They cut really clearly. The Lord isn't coming in with a a bulldozer or a chainsaw. He's coming in with an infinitely sharp scalpel, and he pierces down to the very heart of the matter. All of my siblings have been divorced. Several of my nieces and nephews have been divorced, and one at least twice. Half the marriages that I performed in 27 years of pastoral ministry, is my estimate, have ended in divorce. It's a terrible thing. As we've been doing the last several weeks, we're beginning with the letter of the law and what the scribes and the Pharisees taught, and then we're going to look at Jesus' correction to that and, and as Jesus restores us to a knowledge of the spirit of the law. But before we do that, because of the nature of what he says, we have to have a theology of marriage. We have to have a sense of what marriage actually is and is for. And I suppose I don't have a slide on that, so we'll just go back there for the moment. Marriage begins with creation. In the beginning, it says, God created man in his image as male and female. That's Genesis 1.27. God created Adam first, Genesis 2 says, and then he created Eve from Adam's own body. 
And then he brought Eve to Adam. And Adam receives Eve as his own flesh returned to him. He says this at last. After looking at all of the animals that God had brought him in the garden to name, he looks at Eve and he says, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This isn't just uh, some random creature God made for me. This is part of me, this woman. And then God makes the comment through Moses, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Whatever the Jews might have thought about that in the early days when Moses gave them those words, Jesus tells us exactly what they mean in Matthew 19. It's God who creates that one flesh relationship. What God has put together. We used to say it in wedding ceremonies. I still do. What God has joined together, let no man tear asunder. So the one flesh relationship is not just what happens when a married couple are intimate. It is something that God creates within them. I felt, I think the entire time of our marriage, just by the grace of God, that when Linda and I got married, in a sense, a a third person was created, that, that marriage between the two of us. And it's our job as husband and wife to defend that person, to defend that one flesh relationship. Now, why is it so important that a husband and wife, one man and one woman, one biological man, one biological woman, it's a tragedy in our time, we have to say that, become one flesh? Why is that significant? Well, among the terms that are used to describe God's relationship to his people are two taken from family relationships, husband and father, husband and father. In Deuteronomy 32.6, God is called the father of his people Israel. In Matthew 6.9, Jesus teaches us to pray, our father who is in heaven. In Isaiah chapter 54, verse 5, God is called the husband of Israel. And in Genesis, or Revelation rather 21.2, Jesus is called the bridegroom of the church. God created us to have a unique, lifelong, one-flesh relationship with one person of the opposite sex through that one-flesh union to produce children. And ultimately, every marriage and every family is an illustration of God's relationship with his people. Every husband is playing God in this role. Every wife is playing the church in this role as this living illustration of God's relationship with his people is visited around the earth in every culture that has ever existed. God is father and God is husband. In Leviticus 20, God pronounces judgment on those who would sacrifice their children as burnt offerings to the false god Molech. A few verses later, he pronounces the same judgment, death, on those who commit adultery. Those who sacrifice their children by burning them alive on an altar to a false god are defiling the name of God. They're defiling his picture of, 
as being our father. As our father, he would never cast us out. He would never destroy us. He'll judge the wicked, but remember, we are not born on this earth as children of God. We must be reborn as children of God and adopted. So there is a judgment to come against the wicked, but Jesus says they're children of their father, the devil. Adultery is such a terrible thing because it says God can't be trusted as a husband. Divorce is the same kind of offense. Now, praise God, I just want to stop here as a reminder. He forgives sin. He forgives all sin. There is no sin other than the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which I don't believe is possible anymore, because the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit was saying that Jesus did his miraculous works through satanic power. And Jesus is no longer physically on earth doing those works. There is no sin that can't be forgiven. But if there's true forgiveness taking place, then there will be repentance, confession, humility, and there will be spiritual growth and transformation. Or it isn't forgiveness. So the person who has committed adultery or who has wrongly divorced his wife or her husband and who recognizes that and confesses it and repents is joined to Christ for all eternity. Those who casually say, well, God will forgive me, and then go on doing what they wish are self-deceived. And they remain under the judgment of God. People will say to us sometimes, it's hypocritical. You know people who have been divorced. You love people who have been divorced. Maybe your children have been divorced. It's hypocritical for you to be critical of somebody else. And it's not. What we're saying is sin is sin. Those who recognize that their sin is sin are not being hypocritical. You're not a hypocrite when you sin and then confess your sin. You're a hypocrite when you sin and then say God doesn't care. We are going to sin. Why is marriage so important? Because it's a picture of Christ in the church. Because what we're doing is illustrating to the world around us, and especially to our children, who God is and who we are to be with him. It's the first picture that our children see. So when we deal with the letter of the law, then, in Matthew 5.31, Jesus says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of Divorce. Now, those words that was also said are referring to the oral traditions of the Pharisees. In every other passage, he says, you have heard that it was said to those of old. I think he changes it in this, this one because divorce and adultery are so, so closely linked. In verse 27, he said, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. And you can jump right to, to verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. I think these two specifically form a little couplet. He's referring to the oral traditions of the Pharisees. We know that because he doesn't say it was written. You have heard that it was written. But rather, you have heard that it was said. You have heard that this is the teaching that has gone around. Now, they're basing their interpretation on Deuteronomy chapter 24. That's the reference when they are given, uh, when they speak to Jesus in, in Matthew 19. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 says this. And I I want you to listen for the belief of the Pharisees. 
Remember, remember the statement there in Matthew, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. A divorce. As I read these four verses, I want you to listen for that idea. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if he then finds no favor in his eyes, or I'm sorry, if she then finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her, and writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife, after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord." And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Is there anything in those four verses that says, give your wife a certificate and send her away? No. No. Moses is describing a certain circumstance. He's saying if a man divorces his wife and she marries another man and then ends up freed from him either by divorce or death, she can't remarry the first husband because that would be unclean. That's Moses' point. What did the scribes and the Pharisees do? They turned it into permission to give a certificate to your, to your wife of divorce. For what reason? First verse tells us, if she finds no favor in his eyes, because she is found because he has found some indecency in her. It was true that men would give their wives a certificate of divorce. That actually protected the woman from an accusation of adultery so that she could go remarry because she had not committed adultery. She was not subject to banishment or the death penalty as adultery calls for. But they didn't limit it to adultery. They could and did divorce their wives for a huge variety of reasons. The oral traditions of the scribes and the Pharisees were eventually written down in a book called the Mishnah. The Mishnah is still out there today. You can can read it. You can download it. Uh, Some rabbis said that the words some indecency could mean that the, the woman didn't keep the house well enough or she wasn't a good enough cook. Some took the the statement, she finds no favor in his eyes to mean that she had lost her beauty and he saw another woman who was prettier. And that's the situation that Jesus is dealing with. The law of God was intended to protect women and children. The scribes and the Pharisees took the law of God and perverted it into a license to divorce for any reason at all. I think we we should not criticize them for that. Because in our time, we have something called a no-fault divorce. At least they had to give a reason. At least they had to say, she burns the pasta. Today, people don't need any reason at all. Irreconcilable differences. You don't need a reason anymore. So in essence, the scribes and the Pharisees interpreted the law 
as permitting divorce for, for any reason at all, what does the spirit of the law have to say? Now, Jesus says this in verse 32, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The scribes and the Pharisees painted as, a, as broad a picture as they could with their traditions. Jesus here tells us that, that the spirit of the law almost allows for no divorce at all. It certainly never commands divorce. It's permitted under very limited circumstances, but it is never commanded. You see, adultery severs the one flesh relationship that exists between a man and a woman who are married. Two individuals get married and they become one flesh. At some point in time, one of those individuals, the husband or the wife, goes to another and commits sexual sin. And this one flesh relationship is broken and they are now one flesh with that other person. Divorce isn't what breaks the one flesh relationship. Adultery is what breaks the one flesh relationship. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says it's abandonment by an unbeliever that breaks that one flesh relationship. The divorce in both cases isn't what breaks the relationship. It's simply the recognition that the relationship has been broken. There there are certain people in our country who are on death row at the point that their execution becomes, uh, it comes time for that, after all of the legal wrangling and all of that, the court will issue what's called a death warrant. It's, it's just a, a piece of paper that says it's time. And as long as no other court gets in the way, that death warrant is followed. There's another piece of paper that all of us would be familiar with, called a death certificate. And a death certificate is simply a report on a deceased person, on who they were, who they were married to, uh, their address, their information, and the, the means and the manner of their death. A death warrant is the command to put somebody to death. A death certificate is just the report that, that they have died. A divorce is like a death certificate for a marriage. It's simply the recognition that the marriage has already been broken. Does God ever command divorce? No. Jesus tells us why God permits divorce. Even in the case of adultery, it's because of the hardness of our own hearts. It's because for some, a certain level of injury and wounding and insult can come that simply can't be restored. The heart can't take anymore. That's because of our weakness. There are men and there are women both who are, who are innocent of any wrongdoing in a divorce. And even if the person who committed adultery, who sinned against them, came back in tears and confession, can never bring themselves to trust that person again. It has nothing to do with forgiveness. 
We're commanded to forgive and we're empowered by the Spirit of God to forgive. But marriage takes more than forgiveness. Marriage takes a willingness to trust so much that you can be one. Everybody's got a breaking point. And so God permits divorce because of the hardness of our hearts and the weakness of our flesh. Now, Jesus says that wrongful divorce causes people to commit adultery. Why is that the case? Because apart from the, the one flesh relationship being broken by adultery or abandonment or death, it still exists. And so in our day and age, a man or a woman can go hire an attorney and then uh, file, uh, file divorce papers and the, the, the spouse is served with those divorce papers and sometimes they, they do it at the same time. They've discussed it. They know it's over. Sometimes th- that person who receives those papers, it comes like a lightning bolt out of a blue sky. Those who were, who were once one flesh and who still are one flesh who were lovers, who delighted in each other, now become enemies. Our courts make them enemies. And then the court at some point, after they've gone through whatever hoops they have to jump through, sometimes it's very quick, sometimes it's not quick, our court issues a piece of paper that says your marriage, your legal contract with one another is now dissolved. Dare we think that when a human court says that marriage is dissolved, that God in heaven says, well, I guess I have to sever that relationship? No. So when there's a wrongful divorce, there's still one flesh. If it's for irreconcilable differences, neither one has met anybody, neither one has committed adultery, that one flesh relationship exists when they walk out of the courtroom after the judge has said, you're done. Now, Jesus specifically speaks of the woman here, uh, whoever uh, divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. Why would he say that? Because there was, there, there was almost no opportunity for a woman in the ancient world to live independently. The, the very few could have a business. There were some, but very few. And so that woman, if she has no husband and she has no children to take care of her, she needs to look for a means of support. And that's going to be another husband. And Jesus says, if you wrongly divorce your wife, you're still one flesh with her. And when she meets that man, and let's put it in the best possible light, he's a good man. He's a godly man. He loves the Lord. She loves the Lord. She didn't want this. But that first joining of that they have is adultery. It's not a holy thing. Their marriage is not adultery. He specifically says that whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So there's truly a marriage there, but that initial act, which should be so full of light and so full of love because it's part of that one flesh union, becomes heartbreaking becomes devastating. See, divorce was common. It was easy. It gave the man a free hand to do whatever he liked. Jesus said that the one flesh relationship that's created by God is not broken by man. It can only be broken through sin, through adultery, through abandonment, or through death. 
Wrongful divorce made adultery inevitable. If adultery didn't break the one flesh relationship prior to the divorce, it would break it after. Do you hear the inflexibility with this? This is why Jesus' disciples in Matthew 19, when, when Jesus has said that, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. In verse 10, Jesus' disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Think about what they're saying. Peter and John and James and Andrew and Nathaniel and Thaddeus and the rest of them are saying, well, if I can't divorce my wife for any reason at all, I shouldn't even get married. That's what they're thinking at this point. They've been so saturated by that culture and by the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees that they thought that the inability to just give a quick, I don't like your pasta, get out, was some sort of cruelty upon them. It's better not to marry. And Jesus says, "Uh, yeah, not everybody can receive that. You may think you know what you're talking about, but not everyone can, can receive that. Not everyone can go without being married. Marriage is, is not a human institution. It's something that was created by God. He created us with needs and desires that are fulfilled within marriage. And in fact, he gave us those needs and desires to draw us together in marriage so that we would long to be one flesh, so that we would long to remain one flesh. Jesus' words here aren't a burden. They tell us how we may glorify God in the most common relationship known to mankind. How to bless God. The disciples said it'd be better not to get married at all if you couldn't easily divorce your wife. But we have to remember, there is a theology of marriage. Mankind was created in the image of God, male and female. God intended for that marriage to be a one-flesh relationship that would be lifelong. Unbroken by sin. Unbreakable by anything but death. A husband who divorces his wife depicts God casting aside his own people, which he will never do. A wife who divorces her husband depicts the people of God abandoning God in favor of idols, which is idolatry and which is sin. So why didn't God simply prohibit all divorce? Let's just not allow it all. Let's just not permit it at all. There's no perfection in this world. There is no perfection in this world. He permits divorce not because marriage is meaningless, but because our hearts are hard. My heart is hard. Your heart is hard. And there's a point at which we can, we, we can reach a point of no return. And we simply can't, cannot come back. The law of God prohibits many things that are contrary to his purpose. It calls them sin. But it also regulates other things that are also contrary to his purpose. The law says that a businessman is not, uh, is not allowed to use uneven scales. He's not allowed to cheat his customers. But it's not a sin to do that. It's a, it's a violation of civil code. The law of God says you have to have a parapet on the roof of your house. But it's not a sin if you don't. It's a criminal violation if you don't. 
If God required his people to be sinless and perfect and in utter agreement with him every step of the way, there never would have been a nation Israel. So he prohibits certain moral violations and calls them sin, and he regulates other things to make his will known. He does the same thing today within the church. God has not lowered his standards. He continues to judge sin and sinners. The spirit of the law calls for forgiveness and grace and mercy and tenderness in marriage. It calls for those who sin, whether it's adultery or divorce or any other sin, to humble themselves and confess that sin. It calls for those who are sinned against to forgive And the urging of the law is that the marriage be restored. But because of the hardness of hearts, there's two kinds of hardness. There's the hardness of the man who commits adultery against his wife. And then there's the hardness of her heart that is just unable to trust him again. And both of those things are true. In these cases, John Calvin writes, God chose to make a provision for women who were cruelly oppressed and for whom it was better that they should be at once set free than that they should continue to groan beneath a cruel tyranny their whole lives. God permitted divorce because a man who is determined to find fault with his wife will make her life a living hell. And a woman who is determined to find fault with her husband will make his life a living hell. Better that they should go their separate ways, then dishonor God. Any woman or a man, for that matter, who is involved in an abusive relationship should protect themselves. I have counseled women to divorce their husbands because their husbands were physically abusive and dangerous. One woman, because her husband was addicted to drugs, doing all kinds of drugs and sleeping with all kinds of women and exposing her and their children to danger. The spirit of the law is not fulfilled by forcing someone to remain in a dangerous relationship. Let's bring this home. Divorce touches every family. I've told you about my family. I know that you have your own stories as well. No marriage, even Christian marriage, is a perfect marriage or without sin. So God regulates marriage in his word, both directly and indirectly. And he does this because marriage is the clearest picture on earth of his relationship with his people. So Colossians 3, 18 and 19 says directly, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Many women object to the word submit. It's right there in scripture. It's there. I'm not making it up out of some desire to defend patriarchy. The Lord sealed it in his word with all due respect. If you have a problem with that, take it up with him. But until you can do that, I advise you to trust and obey what he has said. I I think what some people don't understand is that it is not easier to love as Christ loved than to submit. It is just as hard for a husband to love his wife as Christ loved the church as it is for her to submit to him. 
the same sin nature that a woman would say makes her husband unworthy of her submission makes her unworthy of his love. It's not about worth. It's about faith and obedience to the Lord. So we we have marriage and we engage in marriage by grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Or we really don't do it well at all. 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2 says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, if they're unbelievers, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. A wife who is married to an unbeliever who devotes herself to Christ and lives faithfully in Christ provides a powerful witness to her husband. And then a few verses later, Peter speaks to the husbands, and he says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. We, we don't see anything about the woman's prayers being hindered if she fails this in some way. But if the man fails to love his wife and live with her in an understanding way, and treat her as an equal heir of the grace of life, his prayers are hindered. There's more of a burden on the husband because the husband is in that position demonstrating who God is. And beyond this, we are to live with our spouses as Christians. And that means that we are to live with them in light of passages like Ephesians 4 and 5. Just to summarize there, Paul says, get rid of bitterness and anger. Be kind to one another. Forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Imitate God. Walk in love. Get rid of sexual immorality and impurity. Get rid of filthy language. Instead, be thankful. You are light. Live as light. Try to discern that which pleases the Lord. Live wisely. Don't be controlled by alcohol, but by the Spirit of God. Speak to one another in the, in the words and themes of Scripture. Speak to one another in the words and themes of Scripture in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It doesn't mean that we go around quoting the Bible. It means that our words are saturated with the words and the themes of Scripture. Give thanks always for everything. Submit to one another. You can't do these things apart from being born again. Jesus has made it clear in Matthew chapter 5 that you cannot fulfill the spirit of the law without the spirit who gave the law at work within you. That's the whole aim of it. These aren't how-to steps for how how to have a good marriage. They're the result of the spirit's work within a man and a woman which have a blessed effect on their marriage and their glorify God. If you find these things to be impossible, it's only because of your own hard heart. And that's really good news because that can be confessed and that can be repented of and then that can be met with the gospel and taken away through the cross of Christ. The debt of that sin paid by Jesus on the cross his own righteousness credited to us through faith, and then his spirit working within us to transform us into people who do live according to his word. If you can honestly say that your marriage is one marked by grace and mercy, and I can say that about us, about Linda and me, filled with forgiveness and forbearance, don't pat yourself on the back. It's not you. It's God at work in you for his glory 
and for your good. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that marriage is not just about our pleasure or our convenience. We thank you that marriage is about a a depiction of your relationship with the church. Paul even says that at the end of of, uh, Ephesians 5. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And then Paul says, I am speaking of Christ and the church. And so, Lord, I ask that you would remind those who have sinned in some of these specific ways of the forgiveness that you bring. I ask, Lord, that you ease the pain that people have suffered who have been victims of adultery or of divorce. We certainly see the impact on the children and grandchildren of divorce, and it just breaks our hearts. It's not what you intended. You permit it. But Lord, through your spirit, you change who we are. And I ask that you would continue to do that. We give you thanks for the marriages that are good because you have been in them. We give you thanks for the marriages that exist that you are working in. And we lift up those that we know and that we love who have marriages of pain and distrust and bitterness. And we ask that you would forcefully intervene for your glory, for the good of those we love. We recognize that these are heavy words. But we also see on the other side of them the gospel of Jesus Christ. That as we recognize our sin, as we confess it to you, it it is swept away by the enormity of his sacrifice. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.